This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 17 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. And then we just hit record on it and we just leave it just on your, you know, your, just on your desk, just below you or something. And then hopefully that'll pick up your voice a wee bit better. Well, I had downloaded a voice recording app before, so I have one already on my phone. Yeah. No, actually I'm in Edmonton. That's the voice of my guest this week, Melissa Findlay. She's an advocate for marijuana edibles and has just written her first book. I first got to know about Melissa through a family friend who was self-medicating with marijuana edibles. To say this is a bit of a touchy subject is an understatement, but one of the things that we've noticed since deregularization, certainly in Canada, is that people are a bit more open to talk about it. Couple that with the fact that Melissa has written her first book, which is no mean feat, I just had to interview her to see what motivated her and how she managed to produce something that it was easy for people to read, but also easy for people to follow. This is especially important when you've got to learn to cook from it. I started by asking Melissa what inspired her to write this book on this most unusual subject. I've had a very colourful and diverse life. And uh, in my previous life, I was married and he had owned a dispensary with his family. I was a stay at home mom. So I did a lot of like, I'd listen to his day and, you know, about the different research that he was learning about. And so when he would be off at work, then I would be on the computer researching what he would told had told me about and wanting to learn more and Then this whole thing about edibles kind of came around and he was like, you know, people are talking about these edibles and they want to try them. And I was like, well, how hard can it be? I like baking. Let's try it out. And so I like looked up some recipes to make butter and had a bunch of friends over. So I had made some edibles for our party and everybody really seemed to like them. The one thing that I found with edibles is that I don't like the taste cannabis when you eat it kind of tastes like dirt (laughs) and I don't like to eat dirt (laughs) maybe as a kid with mud pies but nowadays it's like no so I really enjoyed the challenge of trying to make food taste good that had cannabis in it doing these parties and trying out the edibles I kind of had realized how it was helping my own pain And I was going through my own journey of trying to get a diagnosis at the time and not really getting anywhere with my doctors. So it was kind of like, well, you need to lose weight. You need to, you know, just take some ibuprofen and none of that was working. So I kind of started self-medicating myself by using edibles and using like smoking cannabis. So that's kind of what started my journey into creating edibles and learning more about them and how they affect our bodies from that kind of like years down the road now I've divorced and uh, you know he and his family went through a very lengthy and trying court case with the dispensary so that was very difficult for our family to deal with and uh I have all these recipes from all these lovely things I've made for our parties, for our friends and stuff, and everyone seems to enjoy it. And I'm seeing that like dispensaries are not, they've really regulated the dosing of edibles, which if you're a seasoned cannabis user, those low dose edibles aren't going to do a whole lot for you. And you're going to need to buy a lot of them to get the effects that you want. And Also, they're quite expensive. And even when people were buying from the black market, it was quite expensive to buy from there as well. So I thought, how empowering would it be to provide basic recipes that people can use to create anything cannabis infused? And then it can really be like effective 
for people who are on a budget but want to try it out or want a higher dose and can't afford to buy all these pre-made edibles. You're very kind of forward thinking um, because, I mean, although people talk about edibles, they don't realize the implications and the science that has to go into it. But I'd love to get to that in a moment, but I want to rewind a little bit and I want to just see how comfortable we are discussing this. And, and if you don't feel comfortable, fair enough. When it was illegal, what do you think were the major problems with trying to, number one, ha- obtain cannabis, you know, and also trying to do the things that you were doing? You know, what implications was that? What, what made it very difficult when it was legal? What was your opinion on that? Um, one of the largest things that was a difficulty while it was illegal, and even while it is legal now, is like there was a huge stigma around cannabis. So a lot of people weren't even interested in discussing it because it was, oh, well, you're a stoner then, you're lazy, and, you know, people who smoke pot aren't productive and they don't do things. So we were really always trying to break that stigma and show, look, like we are normal people and we have kids and we have a family and we function normally, but this is a part of our lives too. And it doesn't make us lazy because I think that we've been like anything but lazy. And even when everything was happening with uh, the court case with my husband, that really kind of broke me out of being the stay-at-home mom. And I had like stepped out and started really educating people and started like with the school because like my son saw my ex-husband getting arrested, which created a lot of anxiety for him. And that created a lot of difficulty with his schooling. And so I had to work with the school and the school board on what was happening with our family and educating them about what's been going on and what we're trying to do and how we're about helping people, not getting people high but that's a really important point, isn't it? It's not just about the, um, you know, people's reaction. It's about the way that we can help educate people. Because some people are so frightened of trying any type of drug that they would never go there. And, you know, I classify probably cannabis, if it's correct or wrong, as a drug of some sort, you know, that does have some beneficial effects. We know that. But also it does have the side effects as well, which we can talk about as well. But how did you managed to gain the confidence of people who were ignorant to the facts about cannabis. What was your kind of three-step plan? How did you get them on board if you did get them on board? I didn't even really have a plan. I was just kind of like go out there and start talking to people. And when I started talking even with some of the other parents at the school, they had no idea that we had this going on in the background. And they were like, wow, they were interested to talk to me. Because I mean, I sat on the parent association council. I was like really involved in the school. So I totally had broke that stigma that they had around people who smoked pot. And they were just like fascinated, like, tell me more. And what do you know? Wow. That's amazing. And so what was it that kind of made you be able to sell the concept of this is something worth talking about? And there were some benefits to it. What was, what was your innate, unique kind of way of angling it what did you do um for me it was more like going to bat for my family because it was something that had devastated us not only like financially because now my husband wasn't working but it had devastated us like emotionally it was a lot to go through and it was a lot to face and we really needed the support of our community so I really went to bat for my family to try and rally that support from our community. Okay. And that's great. I mean, that the, that's coming from the soul, isn't it? Because you know what? You're not trying to sell it. You're not trying to hide anything. This is you. But here's what happened. Here's your story. So, okay, let's talk about the fears of cannabis and, and the benefits of cannabis. Why are people so fearful when they hear cannabis mentioned? And it's probably not one of the strongest drugs in the world, but it's something that has the stigma attached to it because it's categorized within those drugs, that range of drugs. So what were the fears that people have behind cannabis originally? I think originally it was more so because they got categorized with like such harsh drugs that they weren't sure what to expect from it. And they weren't sure what it was about. If we look at things on a spectrum and we look at like, okay, the drugs we get from the pharmaceutical companies, they've synthesized. So they've taken something that's been natural and they've isolated certain things from that natural plant to create this synthesized drug to treat you. 
Whereas cannabis, you're looking at it from the actual plant form. And if we look at like how we have come in the cannabis world to like concentrates and oils, and that's technically us synthesizing the original plant and creating something that's more potent for treating or doing or getting high or different aspects of the plant. And you're able to actually isolate certain cannabinoids to treat different things because different cannabinoids do different things to our bodies. And we all have cannabinoid receptors, which receive these cannabinoids and our receptors say where they go in our body and how it happens. And so what are the true benefits that you think of the cannabis plant? You know, what have you seen the benefits for various people in the, in the community? I've seen the benefits as being less harm, like it's a lot more harm reduction. So compared to pharmaceuticals, a lot of the times people are going in for one thing and they're like, you know, I got a sore back. So they go in and they get something like Flexerol or whatnot to treat that sore back. Well, now all of a sudden you've been taking it for a few months and it's not working anymore. So now they're wanting something stronger, which then is starting to create this in the medical world. Because I found it even with myself and my condition and what I struggled with, because I went through the same thing where it was like, it's not working. And then they start looking at you like you're a drug addict because you're always seeking something stronger, something that's going to take the pain away and nothing ever really does. So then I found with cannabis that, okay, it doesn't take the pain away, but it dials it down enough that I can function. So I'm able to actually get up out of bed. I can go do the chores. I can go pick the kids up from school and I'm not crying or immobile or helpless. And I'm not also dealing with those side effects. So like with a lot of the pharmaceuticals, I find they're really harsh on my tummy or they'll like create other issues. Then I'm having to take another pill to treat the issues that the first pill's creating. And I was done with the domino effect. Like I was at one point up to like 13 pills a day and I couldn't do it anymore. I'd forget to do it. And I, then I'd be spaced out. Not sure. Did I take that pill? Should I take another pill? I don't know what I'm doing. And so really, what's the history behind cannabis? Did you do any research before you wrote your book about where cannabis came from, how it got evolved into our society under the table, so to speak, to start with, and then how it's risen to the top? Is there a history, a long history? There is a bit of a history. I mean, it's kind of a sporadic history. If we look more into like the Hinduism part of things, it's in that Hinduism culture with Vishnu and uh, Shiva. Shiva was known to be drinking the uh, bang, which was cannabis, which is also a recipe that I put in my book. So that's associated and that kind of came from that culture. But then we're also looking at the Mexican culture where they were growing a lot of cannabis and a lot of stuff was coming up from there in the seventies and it made its way up to North America. And us North Americans were like, Whoa, that wacky tobacco. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a bit of a history. I haven't looked into it a whole lot where I no. really delved into the history of it. I've just kind of looked a little bit into it and seeing like, okay, well, it has been used in the past. My ex-husband, he was a, God-fearing man. So he read the Bible and, you know, he was Christian and believed in God. And for him, it was the Bible states that God provides us with every herb-bearing seed. And what is cannabis but an herb-bearing seed? I had a friend, actually, um, a lady who was suffering from problems with her hip. He had arthritis in her hip. And she never got a good night's sleep for many years. I'm talking five or 10 years. And this is before she was just going to go in for a hip operation. And I remember they managed to get some, um, some of the resin type of material, you know, that you crumble into a, you know, tobacco. Basically, um, she took some of this uh, one night and the response that we had was wonderful. The next day she phoned us up and said, that's the first great night's sleep I've had in years. And what that did was it took that edge off. As you said, it's not about getting blottoed and completely out your face. It's about taking the edge off things so that your body can deal with things or mentally you can deal with things. And that's got to be a positive. Now, you know, we're not medical people. Absolutely. And there might be other drugs out there that can help that. But what was your opinion about people getting hooked on, say, cannabis? Is it one of the drugs that 
it's easy to get off if you decide I've had enough and I just take it as and when required. Is that the good thing about cannabis? You don't necessarily have to get hooked on it from your point of view. I don't think that it's a very, like personally for me, it hasn't been a highly addictive drug. And like I've known other people who even smoke it recreationally, a good friend of mine, she was a long time cannabis user and she'd been smoking cannabis for 20 years. And well, with the job and industry she's in, she has to take a test. And so she said, you know what, I need to get a job. So I'm done smoking pot. And she hasn't smoked pot for like over a year. And it's just been, you know, it's been hard for her. Her hardest thing is that the people around her still smoke it. And she wants to because she enjoyed it. Other than that, she doesn't need it. So it's really a matter of us going into ourselves and defining, do we need this? Or do we want this? I'd love to talk about the kind of um, the chemistry of the drug, because again, I know very little, and this is why it's been great to have you on the show today, because I'm going to be educated. I know that. So I've heard there's a thing called THC, but there's other types of constituents within cannabis. What's your knowledge and experience of those different constituents? What do they do and what are the benefits and what are some of the side effects? So with the cannabis plant, there's actually like over 400 different cannabinoids and terpenes within the plant, and they all work together. And it varies between each strain as to the potency of each cannabinoid or how much of a terpene is there or what terpenes are absent. And that's all varying on the different strains. So in a lot of ways, knowing what strain you're working with and what works for you is very important because there are some strains that are going to react negatively with people. So those people who say that they get really paranoid when they smoke pot, that's usually because of the strain that they're smoking. So we know, okay, maybe sativas are not for you. Maybe you need more of an indica or a high CBD strain that doesn't give you such psychoactive effect. Like THC is the psychoactive cannabinoid that is found in cannabis. So That's the part that's getting you high. But the CBD is not psychoactive. And when you have both of those working together, they can both work to alleviate your pain because CBD and THC are both good for pain in the fact that CBD is anti-inflammatory and THC is actually working like a painkiller does and an anesthetic. Yes, got you. Yeah, and I didn't realize that they work together. So it's your job in terms of when you put the edibles together is to get that balance right, to know what each type of interaction is going to be. And do you do a range of different strengths depending on what people want to achieve from it? Or do you have a set kind of you know, recipe that you stick to that really covers all the bases? It really just varies on the person. So if I know the person is wanting to treat their pain and they're wanting to not necessarily get high, then they're probably going to be better suited with a flower edible. You're going to take your ground up cannabis and you're going to infuse that into your oil or butter. And that way you're getting a full spectrum of the cannabinoids. Now, say if they are wanting to treat their pain, but they need that higher dosing, then they're probably going to want to use a starting base like uh, RSO, which is the dark, dark oil that we see from produced from cannabis. And that is a full spectrum oil, which has all the cannabinoids in it. Now, if we look at different products like distillate, it's a highly concentrated form of THC, but it's lacking all the other cannabinoids because they've isolated just THC from the plant. I want to take you back to your background because I'd love to always to get to know the backstory of our guests. And uh, we'll, we'll go back to your book in a few minutes because I really want to dive into that. Some really interesting things in that. Um, Finley, uh, great Scottish name, but where do you come as a family? I mean, have you always been based in Edmonton or in the surrounding area? Do you know a little bit about your family history and where you guys came from? My dad, actually, he was from Ireland. His family was from Ireland. And uh, then they moved when he was very young to Canada. And he was grew up in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. And uh, my grandparents, born and raised in Canada. But, uh, you know, my grandfather, he was German. And my grandmother, she had a Scottish background. I'm not sure when their families had come over, but they met here in Alberta, actually, because my grandfather was living here in Vegreville. And then they 
decided to get married and they moved off to Kelowna where they started their family and had my mom and my aunt. And then I came along. So my mom actually, when she had left my dad, which was when I was really young at five, had moved back home with my grandparents. So I ended up growing up in a household that was very conservative. So they were actually referred to cannabis as like the devil's lettuce. It was very bad. It was not something you would do. And they were very strict on me and very, you know, you have to get good grades. You have to apply yourself. So I had a very regiment strict upbringing and I had high expectations to meet with my education. And I think that was actually part of why I ended up leaving Kelowna and moving out here because I just couldn't take the pressure of having to meet their obligations. It was one thing to do it through high school and elementary school, but now I'm in college and it's like, I don't know if I want to live my life the way you want me to live it. And I kind of want to be a kid and have some freedom. And, you know, I want to go party with my friends and I want to be able to make good money and do whatever I want and break free from the whole family pressure. (laughs) So when you were a kid, uh, you know, when you were sort of at, uh, I suppose, junior high or something like that did you ever imagine in all your wildest dreams that you would be writing a book about cannabis and cannabis recipes no not at all in fact like I was I was a little bit hesitant even because like when I first came out here I was really shocked because the culture in Kelowna compared to the culture in Alberta at the time was polar opposites In Kelowna, I remember going to the beach and smoking a joint with my friends and nobody said anything. And then I come here and everybody's like, no, no, no. And they didn't want to admit that they smoked it. And then when nobody was looking, they'd come up to me in the smoke pit at the bar. Ooh, can I have a toke? Oh, nobody's looking. Here you go. Right. And it was just like, what is wrong with you? Why are you? I don't get it. That's such a that's such a kind of contradiction, isn't it? So there's a the the kind of chilled out BC people, British Columbia. Okay, you know it's not allowed, but guess what? People do it, and there's a bit of an acceptance and a more relaxed attitude. And then you come to Alberta, and we're really uptight about it. But what does that say about our culture here, though? I don't know. It was just very odd for me, though. I was just kind of like, you know, I can't, I can't believe you people. So I did find (laughs) a small group of people who were not shy about smoking cannabis. And so I just really noticed that people here were a lot more reserved about it. So it was like, okay, these people, they don't want to be out in public smoking, obviously, because, you know, the stigma around it and the reactions they're going to get from others but at least they're willing to like smoke it in their homes with me or, you know, in my home with me and not have an issue with me because I am a smoker. So yeah, fair enough. I kind of found my own little group here that was like that. And I just really tried to surround myself with people like that. And when my ex-husband and I actually first met, he had his MMAR, which was a license from the federal government to be able to possess and grow his own marijuana for medical purposes. Right. And he had actually said to me, because I was having so much pain with my back and my hip, that, well, I should apply to do this too. And I was like, no, 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 because now I'm like paranoid after seeing the extreme polar opposites here. What what do you mean? Now you're going to be on some government list and you're going to be the first door they're going to come knock on when they're (laughs) suspecting something. I don't want to be on no government list. (laughs) Well, that's fair enough. I mean, because then, you know, like you say, it's not just the stigma, but it affects your life, your family, your kids, as you mentioned. And it takes a lot of effort and uh, trust to to get back from that, you know, because let's be totally honest, you know, people read a lot of newspapers, they hear it from, you know, whatever's on the social media or on the, you know, the, the radio or the news. And we form our opinions from that. You get judged by the media. You don't get judged whether you're a great person or not. So tell me about that journey then. So you you got here, you managed to find a great group of people who thought along the same lines as you. Did you actually start the pharmacy? Did you get involved with the pharmacy? Is that really where your next step was? I didn't actually. I didn't really Ah. do much with them. They, it was their family business. And so I was more at that point in time in my life going through my own struggle with my doctors and trying to convince them that, look, there is something wrong. I know that there's something wrong with me. 
and they're not listening to me. So I really had to learn how to advocate for myself with the doctors in the medical system. And I had to learn how to become well-versed and sort of speak their language because I've noticed that a lot of doctors, when they don't want to answer your questions, they start to get technical about things, almost to try and like confuse you with their technicalities. And then you won't or ask them any more questions or bother them much. So when I started noticing this about the doctors and I grew up with my mom having a lot of medical issues, so I was well-versed in going to the hospitals and listening to the medical jargon. So I really had to enforce that with them, where it's like, okay, no, I understand what you're saying to me, and this is what I'm actually saying to you. (laughs) I would like the issues addressed, and it involved me going like to the walk-in clinic and repeatedly pestering these doctors. Wow. And I would actually have to show them my most vulnerable times. So I would have to, when I couldn't get up out of bed and my hip wouldn't work and I was falling down, have to drag myself into the doctor to show them this is what I'm dealing with. And it's not acceptable for me to function in a life with two small children when I'm like this. What were some of the key things that helped you start to understand their language and get well-versed in in how you could tackle the issue with the doctors? What were some of the key things that you could recommend to people that could do? I Google searched, and I know that a lot of doctors will tell you, stay off Google, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're right. They will show you a wide spectrum. And usually the most alarming things will come up first. Yes. And so... I really had to even learn to decipher that myself within the internet. Like, okay, your most alarming things are going to come up first, but if we keep scrolling through the pages, we're also going to find some other diagnoses and some other things that could possibly be. So I really started to create a file of different things. So I'm like, okay, well, these are my symptoms and it meets this condition and this condition and this condition. And I'd like to know which condition I have. Or if it's even something else, because here I have these symptoms and I've told you what my symptoms are and you're prescribing me anti-inflammatories, which I'm telling you, take the whole bottle and I'm not doing nothing. Exactly. So what was the what was the kind of roadmap? How did you manage to get them convinced, first of all? And then how did you manage to find help? I mean, did you get to the point where this doctor isn't listening to me? I'm going to have to change my doctor and move somewhere else where somebody will hear what I have to say and, you know, believe what I'm trying to say here. So what were the, some of the kind of things that you did? I went to the walk-in clinic and when I moved here to Alberta, I, like when I was in BC, I had a family doctor. When I came to Alberta, I didn't get a family doctor. So I was like solely reliant on having the walk-in clinics, which some doctors say to me that like, you know, I really need to get a family doctor because to this day, I still don't have one, but I don't know that I would have had that same success because at least with going into a walk-in clinic, you're seeing a different doctor every time. And then if you go to different walk-in clinics, then you're going to see a whole other round of doctors there. And so I really had to go to different walk-in clinics and go to different doctors. And eventually I found one doctor at a walk-in clinic who actually listened to me and said, okay, you know what? We're going to do some tests now. And I'm like, great, that would be wonderful. (laughs) So he sent me for an x-ray and he sent me for some blood work and he had scheduled me for an MRI to try and figure out what was going on. And so he was actually the only doctor that listened to me. And he had provided me with solutions. And he was the one who actually referred me to the specialist that I have now, which is monitoring my condition. And that's been my journey. And I don't think it would have been that way if I had one family doctor and I was stuck to that one doctor. Because I think if that one doctor told me no, and I think so many people have that issue, is they have a family doctor They've gone to that family doctor and said, look, I want to try this. And the doctor's like, no, what are they going to do now? The doctor said no, and they feel like they can't do anything. When realistically, if we actually look at our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we have a right to our medical treatment and how we get treated. 
So if we actually look at our charter of rights and freedoms and we look at our doctors not being the all say God that what happens to our medical conditions and how we're treated and go, okay, we actually do have a say. So we can say, no, I don't accept that treatment. I'd rather do this. And if they don't want to comply with that, you just have to find someone who will. Did you ever introduce, uh, and again, I don't know if this is the right thing or not, and this is why I'm asking, did you ever introduce the aspect of using cannabis in your treatment to a doctor or a medical professional? So I did. And my uh, ex-husband, actually, he was with the dispensary. Part of what they would do is educate people who were wanting to use cannabis as their medical treatment and how to talk to their doctors about that. So I would take everything he was teaching everyone at the dispensary and try and implement it in my own life with my own doctors. And it was a struggle. I mean, you get a lot of no's. And back then, cannabis wasn't legal. And it was like, not many people were getting this license from the government. And the doctors that were prescribing those licenses, the government was looking closely closely at. So a lot of doctors weren't willing to put their license and reputation on the line in order to sign for something like that. So it really became a struggle in that aspect. And I actually, when I did get my MMAR, went to Kelowna and saw a doctor there because they were a little bit more open-minded in BC about signing these licenses as opposed to here where the doctors just, they didn't have time to educate themselves about it. They didn't have time to do any of that. So it was like, you know what? I'm just not putting the effort in. I'm not going to put my license on the line. You're going to have to find someone else who will. That's fine. That's their choice and their right to choose so. But it's also my right as a patient to not accept that. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Melissa Finley. I next wanted to ask Melissa about the change in the law in Canada three years ago and what impact that had on the interest in writing the book. For me, it was disappointing. I was disappointed. I really was. Because I was for decriminalization, not legalization. Okay, so let's talk about that, the difference between the two. Um, So for decriminalization, I think it would have really allowed our country and our government to take a step back, listen to the constituents, listen to the people, and start setting up a structure that would be beneficial to everyone. So I know from my ex-husband and his family running a dispensary, how difficult it was for them. So now because of all of that, any previous charges people have had in regards to cannabis excludes them from a legal market today. Oh, I see. I hadn't realized the implications of that. With legalization, set it up for a corporate structure where I feel that the corporate is going to be the be-all and end-all, which is kind of what happened with the LPs originally, where it was like these, you needed multi-million dollars to open a grow facility to legally grow for the government. And it wasn't until legalization came and a few months after that they said, okay, well, we'll allow for smaller micro-grows, but it still makes it very difficult. And I really believe that if we would have decriminalized first and perhaps listened to the people who were operating in that gray area where they were wanting to be legal, but it just wasn't in the books yet. If we really looked and talked to those people, we would have been able to set it up better to allow them to function in a legal market. Tell me the motivation behind the book and edibles. Where did your interest really kick in on that? Honestly, my main motivation was because I really wanted to empower people. So I really noticed that a lot of people were coming to me going, you know what, Mel, I really like your edibles and they're delicious and I would like to be able to make them or, you know, I don't want to have to pay $20 for a bag of gummy bears. I can't afford that. Well, you know what? What if I started teaching people? What if I put it into a book and then that would really empower people to go, okay, I can do this for myself and I can make this cost effective where I don't need to 
pay somebody $20 for a little bag of gummy bears or, you know, go pay some dispensary or corporate government ridiculous amounts of money for a dose that's not going to do what I need it to do and really give people the power back to them to be able to do for themselves. That's fantastic. I mean, that's so inspirational and really from somebody who's, you know, kind of had to work through the system as to get through the other side, had a lot of, you know, personal challenges as well but you had the energy and the inspiration to do it. Where did that energy come from other than trying to empower people? Is, is there a strong kind of, um, I don't know, somebody that you could look upon in your family that was sort of very motivated in the past? Or, or have you got writers in your family? Where did that come from? Nowhere. It's just me. I'm just that type of person, I think. You know, my mom, she would always, my mom was a very timid person. And so um, they had, she had a very tumultuous relationship with my father and she was very timid and she'd always cower and avoid confrontation. And I grew up watching that. And I remember even as a child being really angry that she just wouldn't stand up for herself. And so a lot of the times my mouth would end up running off in defending my mother. Right. And then she's no, no, Melissa, Shh, stop Melissa. Right. And I think that just kind of sprung into adulthood where it's just like, you know, I can only take so much before I'm like, okay, let me lay it out for you. <laughs> Let's you. teach you how to do this. Yeah. But that's, that's a fantastic energy to have. And it's about directing that in the right direction, isn't it? Because that type of energy can come very confrontational. You know, it can be very much sticking up for people and it's very passionate. It comes from the soul and the heart, but you, what you did with that energy as well, you've converted it into thinking about things and being very clear about what you wanted to achieve and how you wanted to empower and help people. If anybody's going to embark on writing a book, what are the major obstacles? What were the things that you, you challenged you to start with? My biggest challenge was talking about myself. So when I talked to my friend, because I was like, okay, hey, I want to do this book, but I don't really know what I'm doing. I've never written a book before. And so I have a friend who she's really good at setting up businesses and laying out business plans. So I had a few meetings with her and she kind of, said, you know, now's a great time, especially with, you know, the way the world is, we're supposed to be at home. So book sales online are really the way to go. And so I really look to her to kind of help give me that guidance and advice of what it is I would need to do. And then I just had to really set the time aside to sit down and put it all on paper. So I already have like a recipe book and I thought, okay, I got this recipe book. It's going to be super easy to write a cookbook because I already got the recipes written down. Right. But it's not like that. Cause now all of a sudden you have to put some explanation behind those recipes. And then I had to do the actual cooking and then taking pictures. And I'm terrible for taking pictures of anything. So it was like, uh, so I really relied on a lot of people around me. Like my good friend, she's a really great with taking pictures. So I had her come when I was cooking and she took pictures of all my food. And then another friend, we used her kitchen because she's got a lovely kitchen. So have that aesthetics. And they really helped me out with getting through the writing of the book. And then I also used my friends to read my book. So it was like, okay, here's this recipe. Does this make sense to you? And then they'd send it back and give me their feedback on what I needed to change or what I should add. My goal for the book was to really make it simple because I think that knowing the knowledge now of the different cannabinoids that there are and the different terpenes that the plant offers, that that in a lot of aspects has created this confusion for people where it's all of a sudden become so scientific that they couldn't possibly do it. They need somebody who has a lab and a manufacturing company to be able to do all this because it's just out of their spectrum of what they can do. And that's so far from the truth that I really wanted to just simplify it and go, okay, let's bring it back to basics. Because back when I first tried edibles, we didn't know all this stuff. We knew that there were different cannabinoids, but we had no idea. So it was all trial and error and it was all, okay, this worked. This was too much. This was not working. We need to increase that. And so I really wanted to express how that would be helpful to people, even in our everyday life, because realistically, 
when we're taking medication from the doctor, even the doctor doesn't know 100% that's going to treat you. That's going to work. It's try this, come back in a couple of weeks, we'll review what's going on, and then we'll adjust from there. And really, that's what edibles is, is okay, try this. So you start it low and slow, because if you start way too high, you're going to just scare yourself and never want to do it again. And I love that expression, low and slow, because I was reading the start of your book and I found it so helpful, the way that you were very practical and baby steps. Like I'm going to take you on this journey, go low and slow, but here's the things that you can do. Don't be frightened. Try it. You know, and I love that you were really encouraging to people. And I love the way that you, the tone and the way you opened the book. Tell everybody what the name of the book is, actually, so that if anybody wants to look for it on, I think it's on Amazon at the moment. Is that correct? It is on Amazon. And it's the Spoonie Canna Kitchen Series 1 Building Blocks. Well, that's dead exciting because series one means there's going to be a series two. Right. So (laughs) with the first series, what I really wanted to do was break it down to basic recipes. So this is how I am getting the cannabis infused into the recipes. And these are the recipes I use. And then we can in turn take those recipes and make anything, right? Because now all of a sudden you know how to make can of butter. So any recipe that calls for butter, you just put your can of butter in instead. Same with the oils. And I really wanted to help people with like, okay, here's the building blocks. This is the basics, right? And then in my other books, I'm planning to focus on like how I've used these basic recipes and made all these other delicious food. Like I just really think it's good to be able to experiment. And that's one of my passions is like, you know, when somebody brings me a challenge and they're like, you know, I'd really love to have this cannabis infused. And I'm like, great, let's do it. They're like, there's no way. I'm like, yeah, you can do anything. And I just really wanted to break it down for people. Yeah. And I love that because uh, anything is possible. And and I love your kind of passion, your fire about that, because, you know, from, you know, most people who have the background that we've all got, we've got families, we get stuck in a rut, we start doing a job, but we're not really passionate about what we do. But this, I suppose, the pandemic itself has given you an opportunity, like millions of others, to really get out there what you're passionate about and how you can help people. And I love that. Did anybody particularly inspire you to write the book? Had you seen other books and you thought, oh, that, that's easy to do, as you mentioned earlier? Was there any particular authors that you thought, oh, you know what? If they can do it, I can do it. Um, I knew that there were other books out there. Uh, I didn't really look too much into other people's books. Like I said, when I first started making edibles, I had looked to YouTube and watched a bunch of YouTube videos. And I actually went to like YouTube to try and find the original video that I learned from and I couldn't. So I'm not even sure where it went. Otherwise I would have referenced it to my book because it was like literally the first recipe I had ever tried and it worked for me. So I just kept going with it. And then as I've gone through life and done all these different recipes and we've had numerous 420 parties with friends that I really just kind of kept up with my knowledge and experimenting with things and going, okay, well, I heard some people are doing this and people would come and tell me like, you know, people are making nerd ropes. How are they doing that? And so it's like, okay, well, let's look up a nerd rope recipe and break it down and see where they would have infused it. So um, I imagine, (laughs) this is a funny thing to say, I imagine trying out these recipes is quite good fun. It can be, yeah, for sure. And then, you know, you get people to come test try. Getting testers is never an issue. People are always willing to come test out stuff and see if it tastes good. I love that. That's I can imagine not getting, you know, trying to get hold of people isn't a big issue at all. So I suppose, you know, series one's here. And you did mention a little bit about this. Where do you see this going eventually? Do you eventually want to have maybe a YouTube channel, maybe a podcast like we're doing today? What's your ambitions? What's what's the crystal ball saying to Melissa when you look in it? I'm not really sure yet. I know I want to try and get through writing these series. And I know, like my friend had suggested that I do some videos. I'm a bit camera shy, though. So I'm really kind of working up to doing that. Something, I'm not sure what, probably some sort of channel or social media videos to be able to share and just really try and teach people and get the knowledge out there. Because I think they've just 
really complicated it and scared people from making things. And if it's like, if you can go into the kitchen and make that box of brownies from Betty Crocker, you can make it cannabis infused. (laughs) There we are. Well, listen, I want to leave the listeners with something before we finish. So what would you say would be a good recipe uh, that would be a really good starter that somebody could literally make without any mixing machine, but literally if they have a bowl and they have a spoon and they have, you know, measuring implements, What's a really easy, easy recipe that could get started that could do literally today? I would say probably the butter is a really easy one. It's a bit time consuming, obviously. All of it is a bit, it's going to take time because it's all low and slow. So as long as you have at least half a day to dedicate to watching and babysitting it, then yeah, you could totally do the butter or even the oil because you just need a frying pan. Okay, so take us through the process of maybe doing the oil, for instance. So what would you need? What's the basics you need to get started? So the basics would be like a frying pan and some oil, whatever oil you're going to use. And you want to be aware of like the flash points of the oil because certain different oils have different flash points. So with coconut oil, a lot of people now like coconut oil because of that health factor. Uh, However, coconut oil does have a high flash point, which means it's going to retain and hold a lot of heat before it starts to smoke. Right. And so you want to really be aware of the oil that you're starting with. So when I started using these recipes, I started with canola oil and vegetable oil, which has not so high of a flash point. So it will start smoking when it gets hot. And I just kept it at a really low setting. So like your minimum to one setting and I grind up the cannabis and put it right in the oil and just like your saute and onions. And once it starts to get a little bit brown, then you know you're done. That's simple. It's that simple. And then you just strain it out and then you use your oil in your recipe. So for me, I use the oil in my mom's apple cake recipe because she used to make apple cake growing up and I loved that apple cake. And so I decided to make it cannabis infused. I love it. And so therefore that oil, will it keep for a reasonable amount of time? Do you have to refrigerate it afterwards once you've done it? You should be able to keep it at room temperature as long as you've strained out all the plant matter because the plant matter is what will mold in your oil. So as long as you've taken all of that out and you're just left with oil, you should have a fairly stable shelf life. I've had oil for like up to a year and used it still. And what type of plant do you need to, if you, could you obtain it from a a pharmacy now here and say, uh, Alberta, you can go in and ask for a specific type of plant. What would you ask for, for that type of oil? If you were going to go into like a dispensary here in Alberta, then I would say just pick up whatever strain you find works for you. So for me, I find that blueberry is a really good strain for my pain and OG Kush. I find a lot of the Indicas are more helpful to helping my pain. If you're looking for using edibles more in the daytime, your sativa or your high CBD strains might be more beneficial to you because a lot of the times it will knock you out. You don't necessarily want that all the time, do you? Because you have to be thinking about driving and doing other things that you need to do during the day. So you have to be very careful. Okay, so how can they get a hold of the book? Can you just remind the listeners how they can get a hold of your book? You can find it on Amazon. So it's actually available on Kindle and Amazon. And so you can order from them. It's available on digital copy. And I believe if you have a Kindle subscription, it's actually $0. So you can get it for free with your Kindle subscriptions. You can also get it in paperback where Amazon will print it and mail it out to you, which I thought was a really great feature, especially for someone who's self-published because the printing costs is ridiculous. So I was like, we're going to go only digital right now. (laughs) Can you remind everybody about the name again, just so they can write this down? So if you can say the name again of the book. Sure. It's Spoonie Canna Kitchen Series 1, The Basic Building Blocks. And how do you spell Spoonie Canna? Can you just spell that out for the listeners? S-P-O-O-N-I-E-C-A-N-N-A Kitchen. 
Perfect. That is absolutely brilliant. Well, listen, you know, it's been a revelation talking to you today. I've really appreciated your time, Melissa, because, you know, this is a subject that not a lot of people have tackled. Um, but I think since the legalization of cannabis uh, within Canada, it's been great. It's coming up as a conversation piece. But I think the edibles are certainly an area that people don't know a lot about. And I have to say, you know, I really admire you for, for number one, for bringing edibles to the market. And number two, for writing a book, because that is a tough thing to do. And you've achieved both. And well, good on you. And I, I really wish you the best going forward with your further series of books. I really do. Um, I got one more question, though, to ask you. And I do ask all my guests this. If you had your time again, and I know you're very young, right? But if you had your time again, what would you tell yourself when you left school? What would be your advice? Ooh, when I left school, what would be my advice? Um, I don't know, maybe just to believe more in myself, because I think I have been the biggest obstacle in my life, where I get that self doubt. And I like second guess myself. Like I really even noticed that doing multiple choice exams where you're like, Oh, it's this one. And then you second guess yourself. And it's like, if you just would have stayed with the first answer, you would have been okay. But you went and changed it because you thought you couldn't do it. You thought it was wrong. And I think if I just would have had more belief in me and really put the passion behind me instead of others, I think I would have been in a much different place. But the nice thing about it is you've still taken that journey and you've arrived at that new place now, haven't you? There's a, there's a motivation in you now. There's a, an ambition, a fire in your belly, isn't there? Which is wonderful to see. And I can see it in your face with such joy as well and a big smile. And I love that. Um, very briefly, do you have a website? I forgot to ask. Uh, I don't. I did okay. have, like, I do have the domain for Spoonie yep. Canna Kitchen. And so I just don't have the funds at the moment. Once the book starts selling more, then I'll probably get the website going and do a lot more in that aspect. That's okay. That's fine. Because I always ask, uh, you know, if somebody has a website to give that out. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, do you have a great email address that you can give out over the air that people can get in contact with you? Sure. Spoonie Canna Kitchen at gmail.com. Okay, just repeat that one more time so people have heard that. It's SpooniecannaKitchen at gmail.com. Fantastic. Well, listen, I wish you the best of luck in what you're doing. I really admire what you're doing because I've always wanted to write a book as well. And I'm dead jealous, I have to say. But good on you. And, uh, you know, I really do hope that the book does well. I'm sure it will. And, uh, you know, hopefully if people listen to this podcast, they'll log on to Amazon and either get it as a Kindle or as a, as a hardback or as a softback. Um, but, yeah, I wish you the best luck for the future. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. You take care. You too. You've been listening to On On The Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Melissa Finley giving a new perspective on marijuana edibles. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On On The Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.